0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at HereYouAreAZ.com. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org recording by Chekris, london uk the idle thoughts of an idle fellow by jerome k jerome section 5 on vanity and vanities all is vanity and everybody's vain "'Women are terribly vain. "'So are men, more so if possible. "'So are children, particularly children. "'One of them at this very moment is hammering upon my legs. "'She wants to know what I think of her new shoes. "'Candidly, I don't think much of them. "'They lack symmetry and curve, "'and possess an indescribable appearance of lumpiness.' I believe, too, they've put them on the wrong feet. But I don't say this. It is not criticism, but flattery that she wants, and I gush over them with what I feel to myself to be degrading effusiveness. Nothing else would satisfy this self-opinionated cherub. I tried the conscientious friend-dodge with her on one occasion, but it was not a success. She had requested my judgment upon her general conduct and behaviour, the exact case submitted being, "'What o' tink of me? oo peased with me?' And I had thought it a good opportunity to make a few salutary remarks upon her late moral career, and said, "'No, I am not pleased with you.' I recalled to her mind the events of that very morning— and I put it to her how she as a Christian child could expect a wise and good uncle to be satisfied with the carryings on of an infant who, that very day, had roused the whole house at five a.m., had upset a water-jug and tumbled downstairs after it at seven, had endeavoured to put the cat in the bath at eight, and sat on her own father's hat at 9.35. What did she do? Was she grateful to me for my plain speaking? Did she ponder upon my words, and determine to profit by them, and to lead from that hour a better and nobler life? No. She howled. That done, she became abusive. She said, O naughty! O naughty bad unky! O bad man! Me tell ma! And she did, too. Since then, when my views have been called for, I have kept my real sentiments more to myself, like, preferring to express unbounded admiration of this young person's actions, irrespective of their actual merits and she nods her head approvingly, and trots off to advertise my opinion to the rest of the household. She appears to employ it as a sort of testimonial for mercenary purposes, for I subsequently hear distant sounds of, "'Unky says me good girl, me dot to have two bickies' biscuits.' There she goes. Now— "'gazing rapturously at her own toes, and murmuring, "'Pity, two foot ten of conceit and vanity, "'to say nothing of other wickednesses. "'They're all alike. "'I remember sitting in a garden one sunny afternoon "'in the suburbs of London. "'Suddenly I heard a shrill treble voice "'calling from a top-storey window to some unseen being, "'presumably in one of the other gardens.' gamma me good boy me wery good boy gamma me dot on bob's nickybockies why even animals are vain i saw a great newfoundland dog the other day sitting in front of a mirror at the entrance to a shop in regent's circus and examining himself with an amount of smug satisfaction "'that I have never seen equaled elsewhere "'outside a vestry meeting. "'I was at a farmhouse once "'when some high holiday was being celebrated. "'I don't remember what the occasion was, "'but it was something festive, "'a May Day or Quarter Day or something of that sort, "'and they put a garland of flowers "'round the head of one of the cows. "'Well,' That absurd quadruped went about all day as perky as a schoolgirl in a new frock, and when they took the wreath off she became quite sulky, and they had to put it on again before she would stand still to be milked. This is not a Percy anecdote. It is plain sober truth. As for cats, they nearly equal human beings for vanity. I have known a cat get up and walk out of the room on a remark derogatory to her species being made by a visitor, while a neatly turned compliment will set them purring for an hour. I do like cats. They are so unconsciously amusing. There is such a comic dignity about them, such a how dare you! go-away-don't-touch-me sort of air. Now, there is nothing haughty about a dog. They are hail-fellow-well-met with every Tom, Dick, or Harry that they come across. When I meet a dog of my acquaintance, I slap his head, call him opprobrious epithets, and roll him over on his back, and there he lies gaping at me and doesn't mind it a bit. "'Fancy carrying on like that with a cat? "'Why, she would never speak to you again as long as you lived.' "'No. "'When you want to win the approbation of a cat, "'you must mind what you are about and work your way carefully. "'If you don't know the cat, "'you'd best begin by saying, "'Poor pussy!' "'After which add, "'Diddums!' "'In a tone of soothing sympathy.' You don't know what you mean any more than the cat does, but the sentiment seems to imply a proper spirit on your part, and generally touches her feelings to such an extent that if you are of good manners and passable appearance, she will stick her back up and rub her nose against you. Matters having reached this stage, you may venture to chuck her under the chin and tickle the side of her head. AND THE INTELLIGENT CREATURE WILL THEN STICK HER CLAWS INTO YOUR LEGS. AND ALL THIS FRIENDSHIP AND AFFECTION ARE SO SWEETLY EXPRESSED IN THE BEAUTIFUL LINES. I LOVE LITTLE PUSSY. HER COAT IS SO WARM. AND IF I DON'T TEASE HER, SHE'LL DO ME NO HARM. SO I'LL STROKE HER, AND PAT HER, AND FEED HER WITH FOOD. AND PUSSY WILL LOVE ME, BECAUSE I AM GOOD. The last two lines of the stanza give us a pretty true insight into Pussy's notions of human goodness. It is evident that in her opinion goodness consists of stroking her, and patting her, and feeding her with food. I fear this narrow-minded view of virtue, though, is not confined to Pussy's. We are all inclined to adopt a similar standard of merit in our estimate of other people. A good man is a man who is good to us, and a bad man is a man who doesn't do what we want him to. The truth is, we each of us have an inborn conviction that the whole world, with everybody and everything in it, was created as a sort of necessary appendage to ourselves. Our fellow men and women were made to admire us, and to minister to our various requirements. You and I, dear reader, are each the centre of the universe in our respective opinions. You, as I understand it, were brought into being by a considerate providence in order that you might read and pay me for what I write, while I, in your opinion, am an article sent into the world to write something for you to read. The stars— as we term the myriad other worlds that are rushing down beside us through the eternal silence—were put into the heavens to make the sky look interesting for us at night. And the moon, with its dark mysteries and ever-hidden face, is an arrangement for us to flirt under. I fear we are most of us like Mrs. Poyser's bantam cock, who fancied the sun got up every morning to hear him crow. "'Tis vanity that makes the world go round." I don't believe any man ever existed without vanity. And if he did, he would be an extremely uncomfortable person to have anything to do with. He would, of course, be a very good man, and we should respect him very much. He would be a very admirable man—a man to be put under a glass case and shown round as a specimen. A man to be stuck upon a pedestal and copied like a school exercise. A man to be reverenced, but not a man to be loved. Not a human brother whose hand we should care to grip. Angels may be very excellent sort of folk in their way, but we poor mortals in our present state will probably find them precious slow company. Even mere good people are rather depressing. IT IS IN OUR FAULTS AND FAILINGS, NOT IN OUR VIRTUES, THAT WE TOUCH ONE ANOTHER AND FIND SYMPATHY. WE DIFFER WIDELY ENOUGH IN OUR NOBLER QUALITIES. IT IS IN OUR FOLLIES THAT WE ARE AT ONE. SOME OF US ARE pious, SOME OF US ARE GENEROUS, SOME FEW OF US ARE HONEST, COMPARATIVELY SPEAKING, AND SOME, FEWER STILL, MAY POSSIBLY BE TRUTHFUL. But in vanity and kindred weaknesses we can all join hands. Vanity is one of those touches of nature that make the whole world kin. From the Indian hunter, proud of his belt of scalps, to the European general, swelling beneath his row of stars and medals. From the Chinese, gleeful at the length of his pigtail, to the professional beauty. "'suffering tortures in order that her waist may resemble a peg-top. "'From draggle-tailed little Stiggins strutting through seven dials with a tattered parasol over her head, "'to the princess sweeping through a drawing-room with a train of four yards long. "'From Arry, winning by vulgar chaff the loud laughter of his pals, "'to the statesman whose ears are tickled by the cheers that greet his high-sounding periods.' From the dark-skinned African, Bartering his rare oils and ivory For a few glass beads to hang about his neck, To the Christian maiden selling her white body For a score of tiny stones And an empty title to tack before her name. All march and fight and bleed and die Beneath its tawdry flag. Ay, ay, vanity is truly the motive power that moves humanity, and it is flattery that greases the wheels. If you want to win affection and respect in this world, you must flatter people. Flatter high and low, and rich and poor, and silly and wise, you will get on famously. Praise this man's virtues and that man's vices. Compliment everybody upon everything, and especially upon what they haven't got. Admire guys for their beauty, fools for their wit, and boors for their breeding. Your discernment and intelligence will be extolled to the skies. Everyone can be got over by flattery. The Belted Earl—Belted Earl is the correct phrase, I believe— I don't know what it means, unless it be an earl that wears a belt instead of braces. Some men do. I don't like it myself. You have to keep the thing so tight for it to be of any use, and that is uncomfortable. Anyhow, whatever particular kind of an earl a belted earl may be, he is, I assert, get-overable by flattery. Just as every other human being is, from a duchess to a cat's-meat man. From a ploughboy to a poet, and the poet far easier than the ploughboy, for butter sinks better into wheat and bread than into oat and cakes. As for love, flattery is its very life blood. Fill a person with love for themselves, and what runs over will be your share, says a certain witty and truthful Frenchman, whose name I can't for the life of me remember. Confound it! I never can remember names when I want to. Tell a girl she is an angel, only more angelic than an angel, that she is a goddess, only more graceful, queenly, and heavenly than the average goddess, that she is more fairy-like than Titania, more beautiful than Venus, more enchanting than Parthenope, More adorable, lovely, and radiant, in short, than any other woman that ever did live, does live, or could live, and you will make a very favourable impression upon her trusting little heart. Sweet innocent, she will believe every word you say. It is so easy to deceive a woman in this way. Dear little souls, they hate flattery, so they tell you. And when you say, Ah, darling, it isn't flattery in your case. It's plain sober truth. You really are, without exaggeration, The most beautiful, the most good, The most charming, the most divine, The most perfect human creature That ever trod this earth. They will smile a quiet, approving smile, And, leaning against your manly shoulder, Murmur that you are a dear good fellow after all. "'By Jove! "'Fancy a man trying to make love on strictly truthful principles, "'determining never to utter a word of mere compliment or hyperbole, "'but to scrupulously confine himself to exact fact. "'Fancy his gazing rapturously into his mistress's eyes "'and whispering softly to her that she wasn't, on the whole, bad-looking, as girls went. "'Fancy his holding up her little hand,' and assuring her that it was of a light drab colour shot with red, and telling her as he pressed her to his heart that her nose, for a turned-up one, seemed rather pretty, and that her eyes appeared to him, as far as he could judge, to be quite up to the average standard of such things. A nice chance he would stand against the man who would tell her that her face was like a fresh blush rose— that her hair was a wandering sunbeam imprisoned by her smiles, and her eyes like two evening stars. There are various ways of flattering, and, of course, you must adapt your style to your subject. Some people like it laid on with a trowel, and this requires very little art. With sensible persons, however, it needs to be done very delicately. "'and more by suggestion than actual words. "'A good many like it wrapped up in the form of an insult, as, "'Oh, you're a perfect fool you are. "'You would give your last sixpence to the first hungry-looking beggar you met. "'While others will swallow it only when administered through the medium of a third person, "'so that if C wishes to get at an A of this sort,' He must confide to A's particular friend, B, that he thinks A a splendid fellow, and beg him, B, not to mention it, especially to A. Be careful that B is a reliable man, though, otherwise he won't. Those fine, sturdy John Bulls who hate flattery, sir, never let anybody get over me by flattery, etc., etc., are very simply managed. Flatter them enough upon their absence of vanity, and you can do what you like with them. After all, vanity is as much a virtue as a vice. It is easy to recite copy-book maxims against its sinfulness, but it is a passion that can move us to good as well as to evil. Ambition is only vanity ennobled. We want to win praise and admiration, or fame as we prefer to name it, and so we write great books and paint grand pictures, and sing sweet songs, and toil with willing hands in study, loom and laboratory. We wish to become rich men, not in order to enjoy ease and comfort. All that any one man can taste of those may be purchased anywhere for £200 per annum but that our houses may be bigger and more gaudily furnished than our neighbours, that our horses and servants may be more numerous, that we may dress our wives and daughters in absurd but expensive clothes, and that we may give costly dinners, of which we ourselves individually do not eat a shilling's worth. And to do this, We aid the world's work with clear and busy brain, spreading commerce among its peoples, carrying civilization to its remotest corners. Do not let us abuse vanity, therefore. Rather, let us use it. Honour itself is but the highest form of vanity. The instinct is not confined solely to Beau Brummels and Dolly Vardens. There is the vanity of the peacock, and the vanity of the eagle. Snobs are vain, but so too are heroes. Come, O my young brother Books, let us be vain together. Let us join hands, and help each other to increase our vanity. Let us be vain, not of our trousers and hair, but of brave hearts and working hands, of truth of purity, of nobility. Let us be too vain to stoop to aught that is mean or base, too vain for petty selfishness and little-minded envy, too vain to say an unkind word or do an unkind act. Let us be vain of being single-hearted, upright gentlemen in the midst of a world of knaves, let us pride ourselves upon thinking high thoughts achieving great deeds living good lives end of section 5 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Checkris, London, UK. The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome K. Jerome. Section 6. On Getting On in the World. Not exactly the sort of thing for an idle fellow to think about, is it? But outsiders, you know, often see most of the game, and sitting in my arbour by the wayside, smoking my hookah of contentment, and eating the sweet lotus leaves of indolence, I can look out musingly upon the whirling throng that rolls and tumbles past me on the great high-road of life. Never-ending is the wild procession. Day and night you can hear the quick tramp of the myriad feet, some running, some walking, some halting and lame, but all hastening, all eager in the feverish race, all straining life and limb and heart and soul to reach the ever-receding horizon of success. Mark them as they surge along, men and women, old and young, gentle and simple, fair and foul, rich and poor, merry and sad, All hurrying, bustling, scrambling. The strong pushing aside the weak, The cunning creeping past the foolish, Those behind elbowing those before, Those in front kicking as they run at those behind. Look close and see the flitting show. Here is an old man panting for breath, And there a timid maiden Driven by a hard and sharp-faced matron. Here is a studious youth, reading how to get on in the world, and letting everybody pass him as he stumbles along with his eyes on his book. Here is a bored-looking man, with a fashionably dressed woman jogging his elbow. Here a boy, gazing wistfully back at the sunny village that he never again will see. Here, with a firm and easy step, strides a broad-shouldered man, And here, with stealthy tread, a thin-faced, stooping fellow dodges and shuffles upon his way. Here, with gaze fixed always on the ground, an artful rogue carefully works his way from side to side of the road, and thinks he is going forward. And here a youth, with a noble face, stands, hesitating as he looks from the distant goal to the mud beneath his feet. And now into sight comes a fair girl, with her dainty face growing more wrinkled at every step, and now a careworn man, and now a hopeful lad, a motley throng, a motley throng, prince and beggar, sinner and saint, butcher and baker and candlestick-maker, tinkers and tailors and ploughboys and sailors, all jostling along together. Here the council in his wig and gown and here the old jew clothesman under his dingy tiara here the soldier in his scarlet and here the undertaker's mute in streaming hatband and worn cotton gloves here the musty scholar fumbling his faded leaves and here the scented actor dangling his showy seals HERE THE GLIB POLITICIAN CRYING HIS LEGISLATIVE PANACEAS, AND HERE THE PERIPATETIC CHEAP JACK HOLDING ALOFT HIS QUACK CURES FOR HUMAN ills. HERE THE SLEEK CAPITALIST, AND THERE THE SINEWY LABOURER. HERE THE MAN OF SCIENCE, AND HERE THE SHOEBACK. HERE THE POET, AND HERE THE WATER-RATE COLLECTOR. HERE THE CABINET MINISTER, AND THERE THE BALLET DANCER. Here a red-nosed publican shouting the praises of his vats, and there a temperance lecturer at fifty pounds a night. Here a judge, and there a swindler. Here a priest, and there a gambler. Here a jewelled duchess, smiling and gracious. Here a thin lodging-housekeeper, irritable with cooking. And here a wobbling strutting thing, Tawdry in paint and finery. Cheek by cheek they struggle onward, Screaming, cursing, and praying, Laughing, singing, and moaning, They rush past side by side. Their speed never slackens, The race never ends. There is no wayside rest for them, No halt by cooling fountains, No pause beneath green shades. On, on, on. ON THROUGH THE HEAT AND THE CROWD AND THE DUST, ON, OR THEY WILL BE TRAMPLED DOWN AND LOST, ON WITH THROBBING BRAIN AND TOTTERING LIMBS, ON, TILL THE HEART GROWS SICK AND THE EYES GROW BLURRED, AND A GURGLING groan TELLS THOSE BEHIND THEY MAY CLOSE UP ANOTHER SPACE. And yet, in spite of the killing pace and the stony track, WHO BUT THE SLUGGARD OR THE DOLT CAN HOLD ALOOF FROM THE COURSE, "'who, like the belated traveller that stands watching fairy revels "'till he snatches and drains the goblin cup "'and springs into the whirling circle, "'can view the mad tumult and not be drawn into its midst?' "'Not I, for one. "'I confess to the wayside arbour, "'the pipe of contentment, "'and the lotus leaves being altogether unsuitable metaphors. "'They sounded very nice and philosophical,' but I'm afraid I'm not the sort of person to sit in arbors smoking pipes when there is any fun going on outside. I think I more resemble the Irishman, who, seeing a crowd collecting, sent his little girl out to ask if there was going to be a row. Cos, if so, father would like to be in it. I love the fierce strife. I like to watch it. I like to hear of people getting on in it, battling their way bravely and fairly, that is, not slipping through by luck or trickery. It stirs one's old Saxon fighting blood, like the tales of knights who fought against fearful odds that thrilled us in our schoolboy days. And fighting the battle of life is fighting against fearful odds, too. There are giants and dragons in this nineteenth century and the golden casket that they guard is not so easy to win as it appears in the story-books. There, Algernon takes one long last look at the ancestral hall, dashes the tear drop from his eye, and goes off, to return in three years' time rolling in riches. The authors do not tell us how it's done, which is a pity, for it would surely prove exciting. "'but then not one novelist in a thousand ever does tell us the real story of their hero. "'They linger for a dozen pages over a tea-party, but sum up a life's history with "'He had become one of our merchant princes,' or "'He was now a great artist with the world at his feet. "'Why, there is more real life in one of Gilbert's patter-songs "'than in half the biographical novels ever written.' He relates to us all the various steps by which his office-boy rose to be the ruler of the Queen's Navy, and explains to us how the briefless barrister managed to become a great and good judge, ready to try this breach of promise of marriage. It is in the petty details, not in the great results, that the interest of existence lies. What we really want, is a novel showing us all the hidden undercurrent of an ambitious man's career. His struggles, and failures, and hopes, his disappointments and victories—it will be an immense success. I am sure the wooing of fortune would prove quite as interesting a tale as the wooing of any flesh-and-blood maiden—though, by the way, it would read extremely similar. For fortune is, indeed, as the ancients painted her very like a woman—not quite so unreasonable and inconsistent, but nearly so—and the pursuit is much the same in one case as in the other. Ben Jonson's couplet, "'Court a mistress she denies you, let her alone she will court you,' puts them both in a nutshell. A woman never thoroughly cares for her lover until he has ceased to care for her, and it is not until you have snapped your fingers in Fortune's face and turned on your heel that she begins to smile upon you. But by that time you do not much care whether she smiles or frowns. Why could she not have smiled when her smiles would have filled you with ecstasy? Everything comes too late in this world. Good people say that it is quite right and proper that it should be so. AND THAT IT PROVES AMBITION IS WICKED. BOSH! GOOD PEOPLE ARE ALTOGETHER WRONG. THEY ALWAYS ARE, IN MY OPINION. WE NEVER AGREE ON ANY SINGLE POINT. WHAT WOULD THE WORLD DO WITHOUT AMBITIOUS PEOPLE, I SHOULD LIKE TO KNOW? WHY, IT WOULD BE AS FLABBY AS A NORFOLK DUMPLING. AMBITIOUS PEOPLE ARE THE leaven WHICH RAISES IT INTO WHOLESOME BREAD. Without ambitious people, the world would never get up. They are busybodies who are about early in the morning, hammering, shouting, and rattling the fire-irons, and rendering it generally impossible for the rest of the house to remain in bed. Wrong to be ambitious, forsooth! The men wrong who, with bent back and sweating brow, cut the smooth road over which humanity marches forward from generation to generation— Men wrong for using the talents that their master has entrusted to them, for toiling while others play. Of course they are seeking their reward. Man is not given that godlike unselfishness that thinks only of others' good. But in working for themselves they are working for us all. We are so bound together that no man can labour for himself alone. Each blow he strikes in his own behalf helps to mould the universe. The stream in struggling onward turns the mill wheel. The coral insect fashioning its tiny cell joins continents to one another. And the ambitious man building a pedestal for himself leaves a monument to posterity. Alexander and Caesar fought for their own ends, but in doing so they put a belt of civilization half round the earth. Stevenson to win a fortune, invented the steam-engine, and Shakespeare wrote his plays in order to keep a comfortable home for Mrs. Shakespeare and the little Shakespeare's. Contented, unambitious people are all very well in their way. They form a neat, useful background for great portraits to be painted against, and they make a respectable, if not particularly intelligent, audience for the active spirits of the age to play before. I have not a word to say against contented people, so long as they keep quiet. But do not, for goodness' sake, let them go strutting about, as they are so fond of doing, crying out that they are the true models for the whole species. Why, they are the deadheads, the drones in the great hive, the street-crowds that lounge about, gaping at those who are working. And let them not imagine either, as they are also fond of doing, that they are very wise and philosophical, and that it is a very artful thing to be contented. It may be true that a contented mind is happy anywhere, but so is a Jerusalem pony, and the consequence is that both are put anywhere, and are treated anyhow. "'Oh, you need not bother about him,' is what is he said. "'He is very contented as he is, and it would be a pity to disturb him.' And so your contented party is passed over, and the discontented man gets his place. If you are foolish enough to be contented, don't show it, but grumble with the rest. And if you can do with a little, ask for a great deal. Because if you don't, you won't get any. In this world it is necessary to adopt the principle pursued by the plaintiff in an action for damages and to demand ten times more than you are ready to accept. If you can feel satisfied with a hundred, begin by insisting on a thousand. If you start by suggesting a hundred, you will only get ten. It was by not following this simple plan that poor Jean-Jacques Rousseau came to such grief. He fixed the summit of his earthly bliss at living in an orchard with an amiable woman and a cow— and he never attained even that he did get as far as the orchard but the woman was not amiable and she brought her mother with her and there was no cow now if he had made up his mind for a large country estate a house full of angels and a cattle show he might have lived to possess his kitchen garden and one head of livestock and even possibly have come across that rarer avis a really amiable woman What a terribly dull affair, too, life must be for contented people! How heavy the time must hang upon their hands! And what on earth do they occupy their thoughts with, supposing that they have any? Reading the paper, and smoking, seems to be the intellectual food of the majority of them, to which the more energetic add playing the flute, and talking about the affairs of the next-door neighbour they never knew the excitement of expectation nor the stern delight of accomplished effort such as stir the pulse of the man who has objects and hopes and plans to the ambitious man life is a brilliant game a game that calls forth all his tact and energy and nerve a game to be won in the long run by the quick eye and the steady hand and yet having sufficient chance about its working out to give it all the glorious zest of uncertainty. He exults in it as the strong swimmer in the heaving billows, as the athlete in the wrestle, the soldier in the battle. And if he be defeated, he wins the grim joy of fighting. If he lose the race, he at least has had a run. Better to work and fail than to sleep one's life away. So, Walk up, walk up, walk up. Walk up, ladies and gentlemen. Walk up, boys and girls. Show your skill and try your strength. Brave your luck and prove your pluck. Walk up. The show is never closed and the game is always going. The only genuine sport in all the fair. Gentlemen, highly respectable and strictly moral patronized by the nobility, clergy, and gentry. Established in the year one, gentlemen, and has been flourishing ever since. Walk up! Walk up, ladies and gentlemen, and take a hand. There are prizes for all, and all can play. There is gold for the man, and fame for the boy, rank for the maiden, and pleasure for the fool. So walk up, ladies and gentlemen, Walk up all prizes and no blanks, for some few win, and as to the rest, why, the rapture of pursuing is the prize the vanquished gain End of Section six This is a Librivox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by ChekChris, Chris, London, UK. The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome K. Jerome. Section 7. On the Weather. Things do go so contrary-like with me. I wanted to hit upon an especially novel out-of-the-way subject for one of these articles. I will write one paper about something altogether new, I said to myself, something that nobody else has ever written or talked about before, and then I can have it all my own way. And I went about for days trying to think of something of this kind, and I couldn't. And Mrs. Cutting, our charwoman, came yesterday. I don't mind mentioning her name, because I know she will not see this book. She would not look at such a frivolous publication. She never reads anything but the Bible and Lloyd's Weekly News. All other literature she considers unnecessary and sinful. She said, "'Lo, sir, you do look worried.' I said, "'Mrs. Cutting,' I am trying to think of a subject, the discussion of which will come upon the world in the nature of a startler—some subject upon which no previous human being has ever said a word—some subject that will attract by its novelty, invigorate by its surprising freshness." She laughed, and said, I was a funny gentleman. That's my look again. When I make serious observations, people chuckle. "'When I attempt to joke, nobody sees it. "'I had a beautiful one last week. "'I thought it so good, and I worked it up and brought it in artfully at a dinner party. "'I forget how exactly, but we had been talking about the attitude of Shakespeare toward the "'Reformation, and I said something, and immediately added, "'Ah, that reminds me. "'Such a funny thing happened the other day in Whitechapel.' "'Oh,' said they, "'what was that?' "'Oh, t'was awfully funny,' I replied, beginning to giggle myself. "'It will make you roar!' And I told it them. There was dead silence when I finished, and it was one of those long jokes too. And then at last somebody said, "'And that was the joke?' I assured them that it was, and they were very polite and took my word for it all but one old gentleman at the other end of the table, who wanted to know which was the joke, what he said to her, or what she said to him, and we argued it out. Some people are too much the other way. I knew a fellow once whose natural tendency to laugh at everything was so strong, that if you wanted to talk seriously to him, you had to explain beforehand that what you were going to say would not be amusing. Unless you got him to clearly understand this, he would go off into fits of merriment over every word you uttered. I have known him on being asked the time, stop short in the middle of the road, slap his leg, and burst into a roar of laughter. One never dared say anything really funny to that man. A good joke would have killed him on the spot. In the present instance I vehemently repudiated the accusation of frivolity— and pressed Mrs. Cutting for practical ideas. She then became thoughtful, and hazarded samplers, saying that she never heard them spoken much of now, and that they used to be all the rage when she was a girl. I declined samplers, and begged her to think again. She pondered a long while with a tea-tray in her hands, and at last suggested the weather "'which she was sure had been most trying of late. "'And ever since that idiotic suggestion "'I have been unable to get the weather out of my thoughts "'or anything else in. "'It certainly is most wretched weather. "'At all events it is so now at the time I am writing. "'And if it isn't particularly unpleasant when I come to be read, "'it soon will be. "'It always is wretched weather, according to us.' the weather is like the government always in the wrong in summer time we say it is stifling in winter that it is killing in spring and autumn we find fault with it for being neither one thing nor the other and wish it would make up its mind if it is fine we say the country is being ruined for want of rain if it does rain we pray for fine weather if december passes without snow We indignantly demand to know what has become of our good old-fashioned winters, and talk as if we had been cheated out of something we had bought and paid for. And when it does snow, our language is a disgrace to a Christian nation. We shall never be content until each man makes his own weather and keeps it to himself. If that cannot be arranged, we would rather do without it altogether.' Yet I think it is only to us in cities that all weather is so unwelcome. In her own home, the country, nature is sweet in all her moods. What can be more beautiful than the snow, falling big with mystery in silent softness, decking the fields and trees with white as if for a fairy wedding? And how delightful is a walk when the frozen ground rings beneath our swinging tread, When our blood tingles in the rare keen air, And the sheep-dogs' distant bark, And children's laughter peals faintly clear Like alpine bells across the open hills. And then skating, scudding with wings of steel Across the swaying ice, making whirring music as we fly. And, oh, how dainty is spring! Nature at sweet eighteen! When the little hopeful leaves peep out so fresh and green, so pure and bright, like young lives pushing shyly out into the bustling world. When the fruit tree blossoms, pink and white, like village maidens in their Sunday frocks, hide each whitewashed cottage in a cloud of fragile splendour. And the cuckoo's note upon the breeze is wafted through the woods. And summer! With its deep dark green and drowsy hum, When the raindrops whisper Solemn secrets to the listening leaves, And the twilight lingers in the lanes. And autumn, ah, how sadly fair, With its golden glow and the dying grandeur Of its tinted woods, Its blood-red sunsets and its ghostly evening mists, With its busy murmur of reapers And its laden orchards, AND THE CALLING OF THE GLEANERS, AND THE FESTIVALS OF PRAISE. THE VERY RAIN, AND SLEET, AND HAIL, SEEM ONLY NATURE'S USEFUL SERVANTS WHEN FOUND DOING THEIR SIMPLE DUTIES IN THE COUNTRY. AND THE EAST WIND HIMSELF IS NOTHING WORSE THAN A BOISTEROUS FRIEND WHEN WE MEET HIM BETWEEN THE HEDGEROWS. BUT IN THE CITY, WHERE THE PAINTED STUCCO BLISTERS UNDER THE SMOKY SUN, AND THE sooty RAIN BRINGS SLUSH AND MUD, and the snow lies piled in dirty heaps, and the chill blasts whistle down dingy streets and shriek round flaring gaslit corners, no face of nature charms us. Weather in towns is like a skylark in a counting-house, out of place and in the way. Towns ought to be covered in, warmed by hot-water pipes and lighted by electricity. The weather is a country lass, and does not appear to advantage in town. We liked well enough to flirt with her in the hayfield, but she does not seem so fascinating when we meet her in Pall Mall. There is too much of her there. The frank free laugh and hearty voice that sounded so pleasant in the dairy jars against the artificiality of town-bred life, and her ways become exceedingly trying.' just lately she has been favouring us with almost incessant rain for about three weeks and i am a demmed damp moist unpleasant body as mr mantalini puts it our next-door neighbour comes out in the back garden every now and then and says it's doing the country a world of good not his coming out into the back garden but the weather he doesn't understand anything about it but ever since he started a cucumber frame last summer he has regarded himself in the light of an agriculturist, and talks in this absurd way with the idea of impressing the rest of the terrace with the notion that he is a retired farmer. I can only hope that for this once he is correct, and that the weather really is doing good to something, because it is doing me a considerable amount of damage. It is spoiling both my clothes and my temper. The latter I can afford, as I have a good supply of it, but it wounds me to the quick to see my dear old hats and trousers sinking, prematurely worn and aged, beneath the cold world's blasts and snows. There is my new spring suit, too. A beautiful suit it was, and now it is hanging up so bespattered with mud I can't bear to look at it. That was Jim's fault, that was. I should never have gone out in it that night, if it had not been for him. I was just trying it on when he came in. He threw up his arms with a wild yell the moment he caught sight of it, and exclaimed that he had got em again. I said, "'Does it fit all right behind?' "Spiffin, old man!' he replied, and then he wanted to know if I was coming out. I said no at first, but he overruled me. He said that a man with a suit like that had no right to stop indoors. "'Every citizen,' said he, owes a duty to the public. Each one should contribute to the general happiness as far as lies in his power. Come out and give the girls a treat.' Jim is slangy. I don't know where he picks it up. It certainly is not from me. I said, "'Do you think it will really please them?' He said it would be like a day in the country to them. That decided me. It was a lovely evening, and I went. When I got home, I undressed and rubbed myself down with whisky, put my feet in hot water, and a mustard plaster on my chest, had a basin of gruel and a glass of hot brandy-and-water, tallowed my nose, and went to bed. These prompt and vigorous measures, aided by a naturally strong constitution, were the means of preserving my life. But as for the suit, well, there, it isn't a suit. It's a splashboard. And I did fancy that suit, too. But that's just the way. I never do get particularly fond of anything in this world but what something dreadful happens to it. I had a tame rat when I was a boy. AND I LOVED THAT ANIMAL, AS ONLY A BOY WOULD LOVE AN OLD WATER RAT, AND ONE DAY IT FELL INTO A LARGE DISH OF gooseberry FOOL THAT WAS STANDING TO COOL IN THE KITCHEN, AND NOBODY KNEW WHAT HAD BECOME OF THE POOR CREATURE UNTIL THE SECOND HELPING. I DO HATE WET WEATHER IN TOWN. AT LEAST, IT IS NOT SO MUCH THE WET AS THE MUD THAT I OBJECT TO. "'Somehow or other I seem to possess an irresistible alluring power over mud. "'I have only to show myself in the street on a muddy day to be half smothered by it. "'It all comes of being so attractive,' as the old lady said when she was struck by lightning. "'Other people can go out on dirty days and walk about for hours without getting a speck upon themselves. While if I go across the road I come back a perfect disgrace to be seen.' as in my boyish days my poor dear mother tried often to tell me. If there were only one dab of mud to be found in the whole of London, I am convinced I should carry it off from all competitors. I wish I could return the affection, but I fear I never shall be able to. I have a horror of what they call the London Particular. I feel miserable and muggy all through a dirty day, and it is quite a relief to pull one's clothes off and get into bed out of the way of it all. Everything goes wrong in wet weather. I don't know how it is, but there always seem to me to be more people and dogs and perambulators and cabs and carts about in wet weather than at any other time, and they all get in your way more, and everybody is so disagreeable except myself. "'and it does make me so wild. "'And then, too, somehow I always find myself "'carrying more things in wet weather than in dry. "'And when you have a bag and three parcels and a newspaper "'and it suddenly comes on to rain, "'you can't open your umbrella. "'Which reminds me of another phase of the weather that I can't bear, "'and that is April weather, "'so called because it always comes in May.' poets think it very nice. As it does not know its own mind five minutes together, they liken it to a woman, and it is supposed to be very charming on that account. I don't appreciate it myself. Such lightning-change business may be all very agreeable in a girl. It is no doubt highly delightful to have to do with a person who grins one moment about nothing at all, and snivels the next for precisely the same cause and who then giggles, and then sulks, and who is rude, and affectionate, and bad-tempered, and jolly, and boisterous, and silent, and passionate, and cold, and standoffish, and flopping, all in one minute. Mind, I don't say this. It is those poets, and they are supposed to be connoisseurs of this sort of thing. But in the weather the disadvantages of the system are more apparent." A woman's tears do not make one wet, but the rain does, and her coldness does not lay the foundations of asthma and rheumatism, as the east wind is apt to. I can prepare for and put up with a regularly bad day, but these hapeth of all sorts kind of days do not suit me. It aggravates me to see a bright blue sky above me, when I am walking along wet through, and there is something so exasperating about the way the sun comes out smiling after a drenching shower, and seems to say, "'Lord love you! You don't mean to say you're wet! Well, I am surprised. Why, it was only my fun!' They don't give you time to open or shut your umbrella in an English April, especially if it is an automaton one—the umbrella, I mean, not the April— I bought an automaton once in April, and I did have a time with it. I wanted an umbrella, and I went into a shop in the Strand and told them so, and they said, "Uh, "'Yes, sir, Uh, what sort of an umbrella would you like?' I said I should like one that would keep the rain off, and that would not allow itself to be left behind in a railway carriage. "'Try an automaton,' said the shopman. "'What's an automaton?' said I. "'Oh, it's a beautiful arrangement,' replied the man, with a touch of enthusiasm. "'It opens and shuts itself.' I bought one, and found that he was quite correct. It did open and shut itself. I had no control over it whatever. When it began to rain, which it did that season every alternate five minutes, I used to try and get the machine to open. But it would not budge and then I used to stand and struggle with the wretched thing, and shake it and swear at it, while the rain poured down in torrents. Then the moment the rain ceased, the absurd thing would go up suddenly with a jerk, and would not come down again, and I had to walk about under a bright blue sky with an umbrella over my head, wishing that it would come on to rain again, so that it might not seem that I was insane. When it did shut— it did so unexpectedly, and knocked one's hat off. I don't know why it should be so, but it is an undeniable fact that there is nothing makes a man look so supremely ridiculous as losing his hat. The feeling of helpless misery that shoots down one's back on suddenly become aware that one's head is bare is among the most bitter ills that flesh is heir to, and then there is the wild chase after it. Accompanied by an excitable small dog who thinks it is a game, and in the course of which you are certain to upset three or four innocent children, to say nothing of their mothers, but a fat old gentleman on to the top of a perambulator and carom off a lady's seminary into the arms of a wet sweep. After this, the idiotic hilarity of the spectators and the disreputable appearance of the hat when recovered appear but of minor importance. Altogether, what between March winds, April showers, and the entire absence of May flowers, spring is not a success in cities. It is all very well in the country, as I have said, but in towns, whose population is anything over ten thousand, it most certainly ought to be abolished. In the world's grim workshops it is like the children, out of place. Neither shows to advantage amid the dust and din. It seems so sad to see the little dirt-grimed brats try to play in the noisy courts and muddy streets. Poor little uncared-for, unwanted human atoms. They are not children. Children are bright-eyed, chubby and shy. These are dingy, screeching elves, Their tiny faces seared and withered, Their baby laughter cracked and hoarse. The spring of life and the spring of the year Were alike meant to be cradled in the green lap of nature. To us in the town spring brings but its cold winds And drizzling rains. We must seek it among the leafless woods And the brambly lanes, on the heathy moors and the great still hills, if we want to feel its joyous breath and hear its silent voices. There is a glorious freshness in the spring there. The scurrying clouds, the open bleakness, the rushing wind, and the clear bright air thrill one with vague energies and hopes. Life, like the landscape around us, seems bigger and wider and freer, A rainbow road leading to unknown ends. Through the silvery rents that bar the sky we seem to catch a glimpse of the great hope and grandeur that lies around this little throbbing world, and a breath of its scent is wafted us on the wings of the wild march wind. Strange thoughts we do not understand are stirring in our hearts. Voices are calling us to some great effort. To some mighty work. But we do not comprehend their meaning yet, And the hidden echoes within us that would reply Are struggling inarticulate and dumb. We stretch our hands like children to the light, Seeking to grasp we know not what. Our thoughts, like the boys' thoughts in the Danish song, Are very long, long thoughts and very vague. We cannot see their end. It must be so. All thoughts that peer outside this narrow world cannot be else than dim and shapeless. The thoughts that we can clearly grasp are very little thoughts, that two and two make four, that when we are hungry it is pleasant to eat, that honesty is the best policy. All greater thoughts are undefined and vast to our poor, childish brains. We see but dimly through the mists that roll around our time girt isle of life, and only hear the distant surging of the great sea beyond. End of section seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information. OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY CHECRIS, LONDON, U.K. THE IDLE THOUGHTS OF AN IDLE FELLOW BY JEROME K. JEROME SECTION Eight, ON CATS AND DOGS What I've suffered from them this morning no tongue can tell. It began with Gustavus Adolphus. Gustavus Adolphus, they call him Gusty, downstairs for short, is a very good sort of dog when he's in the middle of a large field, or on a fairly extensive common, but I won't have him indoors. He means well, but this house is not his size. He stretches himself, and overgo two chairs, and what not. He wags his tail, and the room looks as if a devastating army had marched through it. He breathes, and it puts the fire out. At dinner-time he creeps in under the table, lies there for a while, and then gets up suddenly. The first intimation we have of his movements being given by the table, which appears animated by a desire to turn somersaults. We all clutch at it frantically, and endeavour to maintain it in a horizontal position whereupon his struggles, he being under the impression that some wicked conspiracy is being hatched against him, become fearful, and the final picture presented is generally that of an overturned table and a smashed-up dinner sandwiched between two sprawling layers of infuriated men and women. He came in this morning in his usual style, which he appears to have founded on that of an American cyclone, "'and the first thing he did was to sweep my coffee-cup off the table with his tail, "'sending the contents full into the middle of my waistcoat. "'I rose from my chair hurriedly, and, remarking, "'approached him at a rapid rate. "'He preceded me in the direction of the door. "'At the door he met Eliza, coming in with eggs. "'Eliza observed, (gasps) "'and sat down on the floor.' The eggs took up different positions about the carpet, where they spread themselves out, and Gustavus Adolphus left the room. I called after him, strongly advising him to go straight downstairs and not let me see him again for the next hour or so, and he seemed to agree with me, dodged the coal scoop, and went. While I returned, dried myself and finished breakfast. I made sure that he had gone into the yard, but when I looked into the passage ten minutes later he was sitting at the top of the stairs. I ordered him down at once, but he only barked and jumped about. So I went to see what was the matter. It was Tittum's. She was sitting on the top stair but one, and wouldn't let him pass. Tittum's is our kitten. She is about the size of a penny roll. "'Her back was up, and she was swearing like a medical student. "'She does swear fearfully. "'I do a little that way myself sometimes, "'but I'm a mere amateur compared with her. "'To tell you the truth— "'Mind, this is strictly between ourselves, please. "'I shouldn't like your wife to know I said it. "'The women-folk don't understand these things. "'But between you and me, you know, "'I think it does a man good to swear.' "'Swearing is the safety-valve through which the bad temper that might otherwise do serious internal injury to his mental mechanism escapes in harmless vapouring. "'When a man has said, "'Bless you, my dear, sweet sir, what the sun, moon, and stars made you so careless, if I may be permitted the expression, as to allow your light and delicate foot to descend upon my corn with so much force?' Is it that you are physically incapable of comprehending the direction in which you are proceeding, you nice, clever young man, you—or words to that effect—he feels better? Swearing has the same soothing effect upon our angry passions, that smashing the furniture or slamming the doors is so well known to exercise, added to which it is much cheaper. Swearing clears a man out "'like a penneth of gunpowder does the wash-house chimney. "'An occasional explosion is good for both. "'I rather distrust a man who never swears, "'or savagely kicks the footstool, "'or pokes the fire with unnecessary violence. "'Without some outlet, "'the anger caused by the ever-occurring troubles of life "'is apt to rankle and fester within. "'The petty annoyance, instead of being thrown from us, sits down beside us and becomes a sorrow, and the little offence is brooded over till, in the hotbed of rumination, it grows into a great injury, under whose poisonous shadow springs up hatred and revenge. Swearing relieves the feelings. That is what swearing does. I explained this to my aunt on one occasion, but it didn't answer with her. She said I had no business to have such feelings— that is what I told Tittums. I told her she ought to be ashamed of herself, brought up in a Christian family as she was, too. I don't so much mind hearing an old cat swear, but I can't bear to see a mere kitten give way to it. It seems sad in one so young. I put Tittums in my pocket, and returned to my desk. I forgot her for the moment. And when I looked, I found that she had squirmed out of my pocket onto the table, and was trying to swallow the pen. Then she put her leg into the inkpot and upset it. Then she licked her leg. Then she swore again, at me this time. I put her down on the floor, and there Tim began rowing with her. I do wish Tim would mind his own business. It was no concern of his what she had been doing. Besides, he is not a saint himself. He is only a two-year-old fox-terrier, and he interferes with everything, and gives himself the airs of a grey-headed Scotch collie. Tittum's as mother has come in, and Tim has got his nose scratched, for which I am remarkably glad. I have put them all three out in the passage, where they are fighting at the present moment. I'm in a mess with the ink, and in a thundering bad temper, and if anything more in the cat or dog line comes fooling about me this morning, it had better bring its own funeral contractor with it. Yet, in general, I like cats and dogs very much indeed. What jolly chaps they are! They are much superior to human beings as companions. They do not quarrel or argue with you. They never talk about themselves, but listen to you while you talk about yourself, and keep up an appearance of being interested in the conversation. They never make stupid remarks. They never observe to Miss Brown across a dinner-table that they always understood she was very sweet on Mr. Jones, who has just married Miss Robinson. They never mistake your wife's cousin for her husband, and fancy that you were the father-in-law." And they never ask a young author with fourteen tragedies, sixteen comedies, seven farces, and a couple of burlesques in his desk, why he doesn't write a play. They never say unkind things. They never tell us of our faults merely for our own good. They do not, at inconvenient moments, mildly remind us of our past follies and mistakes. They do not say, Oh, yes, a lot of use you are if you're ever really wanted, sarcastic-like. They never inform us like our inamoratas sometimes do, that we are not nearly so nice as we used to be. We are always the same to them. They are always glad to see us. They are with us in all our humours. They are merry when we are glad, sober when we feel solemn, and sad when we are sorrowful. Hello, Happy, and want a lark? "'Right you are. I'm your man. "'Here I am, frisking round you, "'leaping, barking, pirouetting, "'ready for any amount of fun and mischief. "'Look at my eyes, if you doubt me. "'What shall it be? "'A romp in the drawing-room, and never mind the furniture? "'Or a scamper in the fresh cool air? "'A scud across the fields, and down the hill? "'And won't we let old gaffer goggles as geese "'know what time of day it is neither?' Ooh, Come along!' "'Or you'd like to be quiet and think?' "'Very well. Pussy can sit on the arm of the chair and purr, "'and Montmorency will curl himself up on the rug and blink at the fire, "'yet keeping one eye on you the while, "'in case you are seized with any sudden desire in the direction of rats. "'And when we bury our face in our hands and wish we had never been born,' They don't sit up very straight and observe that we have brought it all upon ourselves. They don't even hope it will be a warning to us. But they come up softly and shove their heads against us. If it is a cat, she stands on your shoulder, rumples your hair, and says, "Lo, I am sorry for you, old man,' as plain as words can speak. And if it is a dog, he looks up at you with his big true eyes and says with them, "'Well, you've always got me, you know. "'We'll go through the world together and always stand by each other, won't we?' "'He is very imprudent, a dog is. "'He never makes it his business to inquire whether you are in the right or in the wrong, "'never bothers as to whether you are going up or down upon life's ladder, "'never asks whether you are rich or poor, silly or wise, sinner or saint.' You are his pal. That is enough for him. And come luck or misfortune, good repute or bad, honour or shame, he is going to stick to you, to comfort you, guard you, and give his life for you, if need be—foolish, brainless, soulless dog!" Ah! old staunch friend, with your deep, clear eyes and bright, quick glances! that take in all one has to say before one has time to speak it? Do you know you are only an animal, and have no mind? Do you know that the dull-eyed, gin-sodden lout leaning against the post out there is immeasurably your intellectual superior? Do you know that every little-minded, selfish scoundrel who lives by cheating and tricking, who never did a gentle deed or said a kind word, who never had a thought that was not mean and low, or a desire that was not base, whose every action is a fraud, whose every utterance is a lie, do you know that these crawling skulks—and there are millions of them in the world—do you know they are all as much superior to you as the sun is superior to rushlight, you honourable brave-hearted unselfish brute? They are men, you know, and men are the greatest, the noblest, and wisest, and best beings in the whole vast eternal universe. Any man will tell you that." "'Yes, poor Doggy, you are very stupid—very stupid, indeed, compared with us clever men, who understand all about politics and philosophy, and who know everything, in short, "'except what we are, and where we came from, and whither we are going, "'and what everything outside this tiny world and most things in it are. "'Never mind, though, Pussy and Doggy. "'We like you both all the better for your being stupid. "'We all like stupid things. "'Men can't bear clever women. "'And a woman's ideal man is someone she can call a dear old stupid.' it is so pleasant to come across people more stupid than ourselves. We love them at once for being so. The world must be rather a rough place for clever people. Ordinary folk dislike them, and as for themselves, they hate each other most cordially. But there, the clever people are such a very insignificant minority that it really doesn't much matter if they are unhappy. So long as the foolish people can be made comfortable, the world as a whole will get on tolerably well. Cats have the credit of being more worldly-wise than dogs, of looking more after their own interests, and being less blindly devoted to those of their friends. And we men and women are naturally shocked at such selfishness. Cats certainly do love a family that has a carpet in the kitchen more than a family that has not. And if there are many children about— They prefer to spend their leisure time next door. But, taken altogether, cats are libelled. Make a friend of one, and she will stick to you through thick and thin. All the cats that I have had have been most firm comrades. I had a cat once that used to follow me about everywhere, until it even got quite embarrassing, and I had to beg her as a personal favour not to accompany me any further down the high street. She used to sit up for me when I was late home, and meet me in the passage. It made me feel quite like a married man, except that she never asked where I had been, and then didn't believe me when I told her. Another cat I had used to get drunk regularly every day. She would hang about for hours outside the cellar door for the purpose of sneaking in on the first opportunity, and lapping up the drippings from the beer cask. I do not mention this habit of hers in praise of the species, but merely to show how almost human some of them are. If the transmigration of souls is a fact, this animal was certainly qualifying most rapidly for a Christian, for her vanity was only second to her love of drink. Whenever she caught a particularly big rat, She would bring it up into the room where we were all sitting, lay the corpse down in the midst of us, and wait to be praised. Lord, how the girls used to scream! Poor rats! They seem only to exist so that cats and dogs may gain credit for killing them, and chemists make a fortune by inventing specialties in poison for their destruction. And yet there is something fascinating about them there is a weirdness and uncanniness attaching to them. They are so cunning and strong, so terrible in their numbers, so cruel, so secret. They swarm in deserted houses, where the broken casements hang rotting to the crumbling walls, and the doors swing creaking on their rusty hinges. They know the sinking ship, and leave her. No one knows how, or whither, They whisper to each other in their hiding-places how a doom will fall upon the hall, and the great name die forgotten. They do fearful deeds in ghastly charnel-houses. No tale of horror is complete without the rats. In stories of ghosts and murderers they scamper through the echoing rooms, and the gnawing of their teeth is heard behind the wainscot and their gleaming eyes peer through the holes in the worm-eaten tapestry, and they scream in shrill, unearthly notes in the dead of night, while the moaning wind sweeps, sobbing round the ruined turret towers, and passes wailing like a woman through the chambers, bare and tenantless. And dying prisoners, in their loathsome dungeons, see through the horrid gloom their small red eyes like glittering coals, hear in the death-like silence the rush of their claw-like feet, and start up shrieking in the darkness, and watch through the awful night. I love to read tales about rats. They make my flesh creep so. I like that tale of Bishop Hatto and the rats. The wicked bishop, you know, had ever so much corn stored in his granaries, and would not let the starving people touch it, BUT WHEN THEY PRAYED TO HIM FOR FOOD, GATHERED THEM TOGETHER IN HIS BARN, AND THEN SHUTTING THE DOORS ON THEM, SET FIRE TO THE PLACE, AND BURNED THEM ALL TO DEATH. BUT NEXT DAY THERE CAME THOUSANDS UPON THOUSANDS OF RATS, SENT TO DO JUDGMENT ON HIM. THEN BISHOP HATTO FLED TO HIS STRONG TOWER THAT STOOD IN THE MIDDLE OF THE RHINE, AND BARRED HIMSELF IN, AND FANCIED HE WAS SAFE. BUT THE RATS, THEY SWAM THE RIVER, They gnawed their way through the thick stone walls, and ate him alive where he sat. They have whetted their teeth against the stones, and now they pick the bishop's bones. They gnawed the flesh from every limb, for they were sent to do judgment on him. Oh, it's a lovely tale! Then there is the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, how first he piped the rats away and afterward, when the mayor broke faith with him, drew all the children along with him and went into the mountain. What a curious old legend that is! I wonder what it means, or has it any meaning at all? There seems something strange and deep lying hid beneath the rippling rhyme. It haunts me, that picture of the quaint, mysterious old piper piping through Hamlin's narrow streets, and the children following with dancing feet and thoughtful, eager faces. The old folks try to stay them, but the children pay no heed. They hear the weird, witched music and must follow. The games are left unfinished, and the playthings drop from their careless hands. They know not whither they are hastening. The mystic music calls to them, and they follow. HEEDLESS AND UNASKING WHERE. IT STIRS AND VIBRATES IN THEIR HEARTS AND OTHER SOUNDS GROW FAINT. SO THEY WANDER THROUGH PIED PIPER STREET AWAY FROM HAMLIN TOWN. I GET THINKING SOMETIMES IF THE PIED PIPER IS REALLY DEAD, OR IF HE MAY NOT STILL BE ROAMING UP AND DOWN OUR STREETS AND LANES, BUT PLAYING NOW SO SOFTLY THAT ONLY THE CHILDREN HEAR HIM. Why do the little faces look so grave and solemn when they pause a while from romping, and stand deep rapt with straining eyes? They only shake their curly heads and dart back laughing to their playmates when we question them. But I fancy myself they have been listening to the magic music of the old Pied Piper, and perhaps with those bright eyes of theirs have even seen his odd, fantastic figure gliding unnoticed through the whirl and throng. Even we grown-up children hear his piping now and then, but the yearning notes are very far away, and the noisy, blustering world is always bellowing so loud it drowns the dreamlike melody. One day the sweet, sad strains will sound out full and clear, And then we too shall, like the little children, throw our playthings all aside and follow. The loving hands will be stretched out to stay us, and the voices we have learned to listen for will cry to us to stop. But we shall push the fond arms gently back, and pass out through the sorrowing house and through the open door. For the wild strange music will be ringing in our hearts, and we shall know the meaning of its song by then. I wish people could love animals without getting maudlin over them, as so many do. Women are the most hardened offenders in such respects, but even our intellectual sex often degrade pets into nuisances by absurd idolatry. There are the gushing young ladies who, having read David Copperfield, have thereupon sought out a small long-haired dog of nondescript breed possessed of an irritating habit of criticising a man's trousers, and of finally commenting upon the same by a sniff indicative of contempt and disgust. They talk sweet girlish prattle to this animal, when there is anyone near enough to overhear them, and they kiss its nose, and put its unwashed head up against their cheek in a most touching manner though I have noticed that these caresses are principally performed when there are young men hanging about. Then there are the old ladies, who worship a fat poodle, scant of breath and full of fleas. I knew a couple of elderly spinsters once, who had a sort of German sausage on legs, which they called a dog, between them. They used to wash its face with warm water every morning. It had a mutton cutlet regularly for breakfast. AND ON SUNDAYS, WHEN ONE OF THE LADIES WENT TO CHURCH, THE OTHER ALWAYS STOPPED AT HOME TO KEEP THE DOG COMPANY. THERE ARE MANY FAMILIES WHERE THE WHOLE INTEREST OF LIFE IS CENTRED UPON THE DOG. CATS, BY THE WAY, RARELY SUFFER FROM EXCESS OF ADULATION. A CAT POSSESSES A VERY FAIR SENSE OF THE RIDICULOUS, AND WILL PUT HER PAW DOWN KINDLY BUT FIRMLY UPON ANY nonsense OF THIS KIND. DOGS, HOWEVER, SEEM TO LIKE IT they encourage their owners in the tomfoolery. And the consequence is that in the circles I am speaking of, what dear Fido has done, does do, will do, won't do, can do, can't do, was doing, is doing, is going to do, shall do, shan't do, and is about to be going to have done, is the continual theme of discussion from morning till night all the conversation, consisting, as it does, of the very dregs of imbecility, is addressed to this confounded animal. The family sit in a row all day long watching him, commenting upon his actions, telling each other anecdotes about him, recalling his virtues, and remembering with tears how one day they lost him for two whole hours, on which occasion he was brought home in a most brutal manner by the butcher-boy who had been met carrying him by the scruff of his neck with one hand, while soundly cuffing his head with the other. After recovering from these bitter recollections, they vie with each other in bursts of admiration for the brute, until some more than usually enthusiastic member, unable any longer to control his feelings, swoops down upon the unhappy quadruped in a frenzy of affection, clutches it to his heart, and slobbers over it whereupon the others, mad with envy, rise up and, seizing as much of the dog as the greed of the first one has left to them, murmur praise and devotion. Among these people everything is done through the dog. If you want to make love to the eldest daughter, or get the old man to lend you the garden roller, or the mother to subscribe to the Society for the Suppression of Solo Cornet Players in Theatrical Orchestras, "'It's a pity there isn't one, anyhow. "'You have to begin with the dog. "'You must gain its approbation before they will even listen to you. "'And if, as is highly probable, "'the animal whose frank doggy nature has been warped "'by the unnatural treatment he has received "'responds to your overtures of friendship by viciously snapping at you, "'your cause is lost for ever. "'If Fido won't take to any one,' "'the father has thoughtfully remarked beforehand. "'I say that man is not to be trusted. "'You know, Maria, how often I have said that. "'Ah, he knows, bless him. "'Drat him!' "'And to think that the surly brute was once an innocent puppy, "'all legs and head, full of fun and play, "'and burning with ambition to become a big good dog "'and bark like mother. "'Ah me! Life sadly changes us all. The world seems a vast horrible grinding machine, into which what is fresh and bright and pure is pushed at one end, to come out old and crabbed and wrinkled at the other. Look even at pussy Sobersides, with her dull sleepy glance, her grave slow walk, and dignified prudish airs. Who could ever think that once she was the blue-eyed, whirling, scampering, head-over-heels mad little firework that we call a kitten? What marvellous vitality a kitten has! It is really something very beautiful the way life bubbles over in the little creatures. They rush about and mew and spring, dance on their hind legs, embrace everything with their front ones, roll over and over. "'lie on their backs and kick. "'They don't know what to do with themselves "'they are so full of life. "'Can you remember, reader, "'when you and I felt something of the same sort of thing? "'Can you remember those glorious days "'of fresh young manhood? "'How, when coming home along the moonlit road, "'we felt too full of life for sober walking, "'and had to spring and skip and wave our arms "'and shout till belated farmers' wives thought and with good reason, too, that we were mad, and kept close to the hedge, while we stood and laughed aloud to see them scuttle off so fast, and made their blood run cold with a wild parting whoop, and the tears came, we knew not why. Oh, that magnificent young life, that crowned us kings of the earth, that rushed through every tingling vein till we seemed to walk on air, that thrilled through our throbbing brains, and told us to go forth and conquer the whole world, that welled up in our young hearts till we longed to stretch out our arms and gather all the toiling men and women and the little children to our breast, and love them all, all. Ah, they were grand days, those deep, full days, when our coming life, like an unseen organ, "'peeled strange, yearnful music in our ears, "'and our young blood cried out like a war-horse for the battle. "'Ah, our pulse beats slow and steady now, "'and our old joints are rheumatic, "'and we love our easy chair and pipe "'and sneer at boys' enthusiasm. "'But, oh, for one brief moment of that godlike life again!' End of section 8.